Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Dr. Jenny is a board-certified pediatrician and is the director of telemedicine at Pediatric Associates. Welcome to Kids Doc Talk with Dr. Jenny. Today's guest is Vanessa Murphy, and we discuss ABA therapy. Since childhood, Vanessa has had a desire to help others. In 2010, she started working as a verbal behavioral technician treating children diagnosed with autism and related disorders. Once she saw how effective ABA treatment was, she went on to pursue a career in ABA. Vanessa obtained her graduate degree from Nova Southeastern University and went on to earn a Master's of Science in Mental Health Counseling with a concentration in ABA. Vanessa is a board-certified behavioral analyst and a certified autism specialist. Vanessa has devoted her career to community outreach and is an advocate for patients and families touched by autism. She mentors registered behavioral technicians as well as student analysts. Vanessa has over 11 years of experience in the field and values person-centered treatment. She understands each child and family has unique needs. She's a mother herself and sees herself as a compass or guide that joins each family on their journey through treatment. Vanessa likes to focus on areas where children need improvement without undermining each child's strength. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thank you so, for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here. I, I'm super excited to talk to you. I have um, so many questions about, about ABA therapy. It's something that I refer patients to like pretty regularly. And okay. I, I have to say, I don't really actually know what happens like all that all that much um, after, after I send the referral. So I'm looking forward to learning a little more about this. So first, um, tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got started in, um, in ABA therapy. Okay, well, um, I started in 2010. Every time I say that, I feel like ages have passed. Um, but in 2010 is when I really got introduced to ABA. I was doing a dual internship in mental health counseling as well as ABA. And when I saw a nonverbal child speak, um, that took me away. Um, and I fell in love with the field. Um, so I gravitated towards ABA thereafter, um, and I haven't left the field since. Okay, amazing. So now let's back up the truck, and what is ABA? Okay, so ABA is Applied Behavior Analysis. It's empirically based. Everything we do um, has research behind it, and that's one of the things that I fell in love with. Um, it, it comprises of, and a lot of people have a misconception where it's only tabletop work or we're running what we, what we call DTT, discrete trial training. Um, ABA can be provided in the schools. It can be provided in the home setting. Um, wherever services are warranted, we're there. Um, there's also something known as OBM, um, where we actually work with corporations as well. So it's a, it's a wide range eclectic field and it's not limited to just uh, individuals on the spectrum. Um, and it could also apply to adults as well as uh, the baby's pediatric population. So my experience with ABA is it's kind of like my first go-to if I suspect that a child has autism, right? Or the child's been formally diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it sounds like that's not necessarily the only patient population that benefits from ABA? Correct. Um, but it is very common, like you said, and it is very popular. Um, and we're, we're not the only ones that 
our kids that we serve on the spectrum actually benefit from um, they they also benefit from speech pathology, some warrant occupational therapy and even physical therapy. What are other um, I guess maybe diagnoses or other populations of people that would benefit from ABA other than um, those on the spectrum? So ADHD. Um, I've worked in group home settings with individuals that have had uh, comorbid disorders such as schizoaffective disorders, schizophrenia, um, any type of mental illness, or even then, uh, even if you haven't been diagnosed with mental illness or have a diagnosis, um, you can still modify your behavior like when it comes to um, goals or for people that want to stop smoking. Um, or just, just there's self-monitoring tools that you can utilize to help shape your own behavior as well. That's so interesting. So, uh, for example, a lot of times when I'm seeing a patient that has a, let's say, behavioral challenge, maybe not necessarily like a pathologic diagnosis, right? But like some, some behavior that's challenging either for themselves or for the family. We, you know, that could mean potty training. That could mean just kind of like uh, oppositional defiance, right? And a child who's really, really not listening or a child who's really has a hard time, let's say, uh, right, functioning in, in school because of their behavior. And they don't necessarily meet criteria for like a formal diagnosis of ADHD. Um, sometimes I'll refer them to just behavioral therapy just with, with kind of like a either a behavioral therapist or a psychologist how is ABA different from just like regular what what I call behavioral therapy um well I, I when you say behavior therapy you're, you're talking about addressing key behaviors and that's really what we're looking at because we're not really looking at diagnosis we're looking at what behaviors are being exhibited that aren't functioning for this child how is this impeding their quality of life across settings um so that's really what we're looking at. However, in order to access services today, the way that the system is set up, if you will, um, it makes it difficult. And this is something that I did want to bring up because it is a whole process. Um, so you had mentioned what happens after I refer out. Well, a whole process happens. Um, so if you're going through the private insurance, you're looking at you need a diagnosis of autism. It is very difficult to get. ABA services outside of that. Um, and when it comes to um, getting that diagnosis, it's it's depending on the insurance carrier, they typically want a neurologist to give that diagnosis. Now to get into, to get seen from a neurologist takes months, yeah. half a year, six months. I've, I've heard there's a waiting list for up to six months. Now that's not fair to a family that really has severe problem behavior where, you know, the child is engaging in self-injurious behavior or just whatever behaviors are, are being exhibited are really impeding their quality of life. And well, you know, you gotta wait, you, you have to wait six months to be seen. Um, so after you get that diagnosis, uh, in the past during telehealth, it was okay for a neurologist to simply say, uh, you know, a letter, submit a letter to the insurance carrier stating this child has this diagnosis, ABA is recommended. That was okay during the time of COVID when it first started, I would say for about two years. Now that the world is opening back up, you know, we're going back to normal, um, it's not okay anymore. So they're all asking for a diagnostic report on top of the diagnosis. So the ADOS, the CARS, those are the two popular ones that are most accepted across carriers. Um, 
which can be a challenge to obtain as well, because I've had some patients that really take some time to obtain that even through it's not on their portal, their patient portal. Um, some doctors won't provide that. Um, so it gets it gets a bit challenging, um, but so you need the diagnosis, you need the uh, the report. Um, and thereafter, then we send out, we look at the insurance, we make sure that um, everything is covered as far as initial assessment goes. Then you come in where I work, I work at Minds in Motion, um, and you come to the clinic, we'll do a direct observation, we'll do our, our own assessments, and then we will um, send that out to, after we get consent from the family, we review the behavior plan, we're all on board, um, because parent input is is the most valuable thing here. We we give recommendations, but it's very important to have the the family partake in um, the decision making when it comes to goals. So if there's anything there that the that the family does not want to work on, that's fine. We take it out um, or modify it, tweak it because um, we're in this together and then we send it out to the insurance and then we wait there for about I would say about seven to 14 days till we get you know, word from them, hey, we got approval, this looks good, um, let's move forward. Um, and so usually given from the time it takes from you actually referring out to us doing our own intake to then getting approval uh, from the insurance to then staffing the case, um, it can take about a month, maybe a little bit over a month. So that I think is like so so frustrating to hear that that whole process. It's like there's so many challenges in place for a child and family who's already having challenges. That's why they're on this path. So okay. is there anything that either the parent or even the doctor who's doing the initial referral can do to either advocate for, you know, this to go a little bit faster or to to, to advocate for kind of optimization of this process? The quickest I've seen based off of my experience with parents that really are adamant and don't take no for an answer, it's really just a matter of getting on a waiting list. If there are any cancellations, please just put me on a waiting list and, and give us a call or there are parents that literally call biweekly just to see if there are any openings. Um, so you have to actively be pursuing uh, or, you know, um, calling all the different neurologists that are in your area, if not cross county, just to get that diagnosis. So that's that's usually what I tell parents also. So yeah. which which sometimes can can feel a little bit defeating. Like you got to keep doing, got to keep calling. And um, sometimes these these families become really really good good advocates for for the for for the child. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I've seen those parents really like move mountains to to get the services for for their children. Unfortunately, um, if that's what needs to happen, can you describe? I think that this would be so cool for me to hear. Like a typical ABA session. Sure. Um, in what setting? Um, so I, I guess let's let's do the more common one. So let's say a child who has a new diagnosis of of autism, and and I'm sure right, just like the diagnosis is very variable, and that's why we call it a spectrum. I suspect that the actual therapy is also very variable, but kind of like walk me through that assessment and like what, how do you even like determine what the goals of therapy should be? Maybe let's start there. Okay, amazing. So there is a parent interview, there's a medical records review, there's also a direct observation and direct assessment that's conducted. Um, we typically use the ABLES-R, the VB-MAP, um, and these are all assessments that allow us to really see where there are strengths and um, areas for growth. 
Um, that's a roadmap for us. It's not necessarily going to tell us what exactly we're going to be working on, but it gives us an idea. It's a tool that we use to help us. Um, what we really want to see is how the child Direct observations are great in the natural environment. So if you're working in a center that really helps see how the child is compared to their peers, how they're able to um, conduct themselves in a group instruction, can they attend to the speaker? Are they fidgeting? How long can they actually sit? Um, are they getting distracted by everything that's around them? Is it overwhelming? Um, how do they do with task completion or working independently? So from group activity to independent tasks. Um, from start to finish. How long does it take the child to start um, an actual activity that is or um, task that has been assigned to them? Um, we're also looking at social skills. We're looking at how the child navigates the world in that how, how do they access their needs? How do they access things that they want or need? Um, are they are they exhibiting problem behavior to get what they want? Are they tugging on you? Are they gesturing? Are they pulling? How are those communication skills and where are the deficits? Um, how do they get their needs met? Seeing them with their parents is also very interesting to see and to see them with both parents because they could act very differently with one and very differently with the other. So it's very important for direct observations to be conducted. Um, because sometimes when you just base certain interventions off of parent report, which is best practice, you should do it with a direct observation. Um, anecdotal data is important, but when you're looking at it at a lens from a behavioral scope, you're going to pick up on things that maybe the parent doesn't or maybe the teacher doesn't. So um, it's really it's really helpful to, to conduct those direct observations and use those assessment tools to really come up with a good plan. A behavior plan, the heart and soul of a behavior plan is looking at the function of the behaviors. So we do functional assessments to really see what target behaviors the um, the parents identify as most difficult at home or at school that's really disrupting this child's life or theirs. Um, and we go from there. So we identify the problem behaviors. We look at why these behaviors are occurring. What's maintaining them? What in the environment is triggering and maintaining these behaviors? And from that, then we can really come up with something that's socially appropriate where the child can actually get their needs met, but in a more socially appropriate fashion. Um, and then we look at the social skills deficits and we run certain assessments for that to see how um, how we can help them navigate the world we live in. That's uh, it's all social based. I feel like I need a nap just like after, after <laughs> hearing like what that experience is like, because that is so, so exhausting. And I know how I feel after even just like a, a short visit with mm -hmm. sometimes these families because it's so draining certainly they're they're extremely drained right having to um right having a child who maybe has some challenging behaviors or a child on the spectrum mm -hmm. um and they're living this life all the time and even sometimes like i said even after a short visit um sometimes it, it, it can be very draining so how long does this whole intake take because i feel like this is like days and days of data that you're gathering yeah that's fair so i mean it could take it it, it really depends so um if you've been in the field for a while, you know, you can write up those reports pretty quickly. But if you're starting off, it, it can take some time gathering all the information. But usually when I have uh, clients come in, um, it'll take about two hours to run the assessments because we have student analysts that help, which is phenomenal. If it was just, you know, the, the clinician, the BCBA running from start to finish, this could take a few days. Absolutely. 
And that's not to mention that we also have certain requirements from carriers that make the um, the parents fill out a Vineland assessment and that assessment can take up to an hour. So I always recommend the parents, you know, have a glass of wine or some tea, take your time with it um, because it is it is timely. But um, I don't want you to just scroll through an answer because you're tired and you're just clicking whatever. Like we really want to get an accurate depiction of what's going on. So that I mean that it sounds very labor intensive in terms of the therapies themselves like when do you do the initial assessment and you identify the goals you identify the deficits how long can can really a typical session take because even I think for a neurotypical child right such such a focus intensive um, experience really you can't focus for for very long and certainly right the children who are on the spectrum I imagine would be a, an extreme challenge to focus for a long time and really like put in the maximum effort that they need to in order to be successful with these yeah absolutely um so we really try to incorporate lots of we we let the child guide us right so we look at okay clearly uh this is too much or maybe we need some more movement breaks maybe we can break up a long task into smaller ones um, we always do a preference assessment to increase motivation off bat before any session, even during intakes, um, just to see where the child is, what they love, so what's going to motivate them to actually comply with a complete stranger. Um, usually, we pair in the beginning of our therapies where that's really establishing rapport, that's really letting the child get to know us, and we get to know the child. In the intake, we're crunched with time. So uh, we, we do the preference assessment. We don't have that opportunity. We try to do it for a little bit, but usually if we have tangible items, if the child is motivated by different types of toys, maybe uh, you know a song, um, different manipulatives, we'll put it in front of him and see what, what captures their attention so that we can then first work and then we can get access to that reward. Um, but if it's too much, we break it up into small tasks. We take movement breaks. Um, and, and we let the child lead. Wow. Uh, so it sounds like really a, a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of effort. I, I want to talk about a specific patient population that I, I'm really passionate about. And it's actually something that you mentioned right in the beginning. It's the okay. nonverbal non child, right? So I know even for like sick visits and certainly for well visits, when we see these kids in the office, um, it, it's challenging, right? It's challenging to, to really assess the health of a nonverbal child. I cannot even imagine the, the, the amount of creativity, right? And the amount of effort that it takes to engage a nonverbal child in ABA. Walk me through that a little bit and kind of the, maybe the different techniques that you guys use. Okay, so I had mentioned the preference assessment and we can do free offering preference assessments where we're just looking at what they gravitate towards and for how long they manipulate those objects. And then we, we put them on a hierarchy from most to least of what they like the most to what they like the least, but it's still considered something that they like or also known as a reinforcer. Um, so once we have that under our belt, we have our data, then uh, we can start looking at um, running the assessment. So if the child is inattentive, that's still good data to, to obtain. If the child is not responding, still good data. Um, and we would assume that, that the child does not have the skill at that time. Now, granted, an intake is only a two-hour window of what the child really can do. And you'll usually find that they open up a lot more after they start sessions. Um, but I would rather write on the assessment that the child may not have this skill 
instead of assuming that they do so that we still have the opportunity to run it. And if they master it in like in three sessions or in the first session, that's fine. Um, but I'd rather underestimate than overestimate so we can still get those opportunities to, to work on these skills. Um, but it, it takes a collaborative effort. Um, it's, it's something where you're looking at function based interventions. You're looking at um, how the child gets their needs met. Is it through gesturing? Because that's all they can do at that time. Um, some of our kiddos um, use AAC devices, communication devices, where it's a lot of conditioning, a lot of training, but it's amazing to see how they can really navigate these things, you know, and especially with the generation today, our kids love technology. It's like you can't shy away from it. And I know that some parents are completely against using technology, whereas others are a bit more flexible. Um, my, my personal stance is, moderation is everything. I don't think that you should solely be using technology for your interventions, but I also don't think you need to shy away from it completely because yeah, when you compare our kids to their cohort um, that don't have a diagnosis, they're playing video games, they're listening to music, and if you really want appropriate social skills and age-appropriate um, games, you, you want to bring them into this world so that they can function and socialize. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a super interesting perspective because it really, I think, makes you question, like, what is ultimately the goal, right? Is the goal just to necessarily, like, fill this one deficit or give them this one skill or give them, like, a whole toolbox, right, of things exactly. that they can use to sort of, you know, be be the most successful versions of themselves and really uh, right, yeah. thri thrive in society. Exactly, exactly that. And, and our training is to really help the child be as independent as possible. Um, and more and more, we're seeing that the carriers aren't really, su they're supportive, <clears throat> but we're seeing more and more that it's getting more difficult to work on certain skills if we're not seeing a lot of problem behavior that's associated with it. Um, which is a little frustrating on my end because, you know, there's so much we can teach. And if we have this opportunity to, to provide them with these tools, you know, like, let us have it. <laughs> um, but anyways, going back to the toolbox, and that also carries over to the parents. Um, uh, the parents, parent training is, is crucial in what we do because I've always told parents, why would you want your children to only listen to us and not you? Or why would you want them to only exhibit the skill here at center and not at home or at school? So generalization is huge in, in our treatment planning. Um, and I believe you you also do this in your in your programming or in your recommendations. You you have to think about how to fade out as well when it comes to starting when, when you're working with a patient. Um, and how are you going to get this child to be, you know, uh, to, to resolve the matter and fade out? Um, we also have to have a fading criteria in our behavior plan where even from intake where you just met the child two hours in and you got to start writing uh, fading criteria. Um, but that's but the I, think, I think that's actually really helpful because I think it makes it very concrete, right? So bottom line is AB is just, just like any other intervention, right? We don't start a medication without knowing how long we're going to be on the medication. Even sometimes not necessarily time-wise, but kind of like, what are the criteria for us to come off of this medication? And it sounds like you guys think very much the same. Like what are kind of our discharge criteria? How do we know what are the goals and how do we know when those goals are met? I think that's really probably yes. very empowering for, for families and patients that it's not this like endless indefinite journey where like we're just going to go and like hope everything's better. It's it's very, very concrete. 
Yeah, I, I always say that a good teacher, a good therapist always works themselves out of a job. Like uh, we want to give you the tools you need and fade out as quick as possible. That makes sense. So listen, this was this was so much good information. I feel like really um, empowered and I, I feel like I can really educate the families that I refer to ABA much oh, more. So. Um, any any like major takeaways, anything that you really want to just like communicate and make sure that that people know about ABA? Um, well, there are some criticisms that we hear that it's uh, too adult led. It's only tabletop work. We hear, uh, you know, with um, stereotypical behaviors are a hot topic these days and what that looks like. So that looks like hand flapping. That looks like body rocking. That looks like hand puppets. Um, that looks like spinning. Um, and these are all things that are not socially appropriate, but uh, individuals on the spectrum have verbalized now that we have these social platforms and outlets that you know, they didn't like it when that was stopped or it, it, it just they would have rathered engaged in those behaviors because it helped them soothe. And this is a hot topic. So I think this is interesting to talk about. And every time I do an intake or when I talk to parents, you know, I guess I'm, I'm kind of in the middle because I'm also a mother and I, I definitely take the stance of informing the families and not every child exhibits stereotypical behavior, but it is very common, right? Um, so we, if, if the child is presenting with such behaviors, um, I always ask them, I let them know, hey, you know, uh, individuals have used platforms and social media to say they didn't like it when that was stopped. Um, usually occupational therapists help with sensory processing and how to really calm the body. Um, I usually collaborate with occupational therapists when it comes to this, just to see if we can, first of all, we look at it from a behavioral lens of what is the function of this behavior, and then collaborating with an occupational therapist to see how we can work together to help the body regulate and, and move forward um, with socially appropriate behaviors. Um, and so um, I feel like I'm going on a tangent, but the, uh, no, I think that this is helpful because what this makes me think of is I actually had a pediatric neurologist on a few times here in the podcast. And we talked a lot about like neurodiversity and the idea that not something is it. It's not necessarily something is even wrong or broken. Right. So the idea of embracing neurodiversity. And so I think this this is very much in line with that, that exactly it's, you don't look right. at it as like, oh, they hand flap wrong. Let's fix it. It's kind of like looking at it holistically, say, you know, is it disruptive? If it's exactly. not, maybe we exactly. leave it alone and it's exactly. not a big deal and right. they're not the problem, right? Exactly. Um, and, and so I always leave it up to the parent. I always leave it up to the parent because there are certain behaviors that I don't care for my kid to be doing. And sometimes you do have those parents that just don't care for their child to be hand flapping or engaging in certain behaviors for whatever reason. So um I think the behavior analyst should always incorporate the family's input, their values, the culture, um, and just be a compass, you know, help them navigate and, and help them with this whole uh, journey of behavior therapy. Because it could be lengthy, it could be short term, it really depends on the child and the rate in which they acquire skills. Um, but we're just here to help. You know, and the majority of the people in this field absolutely love what they do. They love what they do, and, and it's a it's a gift that it's here. I, I really believe in the field. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was super helpful, super, super interesting. And I, I so appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all of this with us. Oh, it's a pleasure meeting you. And thank you so much for having me anytime. Make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for joining us on Kids Talk Talk.